This morning's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I'll cry out like a woman in labor. I will grasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are gods. This is the word of the Lord. Great, Phil, thanks so much for reading for us. And let me add my greeting to Scott's this morning. It's great to see so many in the room with us today. A whole bunch of new faces as well. So a very special welcome to you, if this is your first time with us. And also to all the people who are joining us online as well. Um, can I just say as well, I agree with Scott, the sound up here is quite something when a whole lot of people are singing praise to God in the room. So if you're on the live stream, I hope you're singing loudly at home in your lounge room. It's great in here. I hope we can see you soon. All right. So what's new? Well, it's a standard Aussie greeting, isn't it? And what's the standard Aussie answer? Not much. <laughs> Only been here 10 years, I'm learning. 
But you'd be absolutely right, because while we're constantly chasing newness, there's actually nothing that's ever really new, is there? The iPhone 14 has just come out. won't be long before we're hanging on for the iPhone 15. Functionally, I'm not sure it's much that different to my iPhone single-digit whatever. Except the price tag. But still, we obsess over newness, don't we? It kind of it feeds our FOMO, our fear of missing out. In fact, the whole marketing industry is built on this premise that you have to have the very latest thing. We need a new car. We need new clothes. We need a new credit card so we can buy more new stuff with money that we don't yet have. In fact, back in March, uh, Money Magazine reported that one in five Australians have gone into debt or spent more than they can afford just to keep up with their friends and social circle. One in five. Got to have the latest everything. But you know, in reality, to echo the writer of Ecclesiastes, we looked at in term two, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. So a new house isn't functionally different from an old one, or from a, a tent or a cave, really. A new car is still just away from getting from A to B. A new toy is just still something to keep you entertained. You know, personally, I get a bit of a kick over seeing the latest fashions being just the same stuff we were wearing in the 90s. It's nice to get some chuckles there. It knows that some, some people are my vintage. That's great. Bring on the baggy corduroys, I say. Do you know what? We don't just obsess over having new stuff, do we? We also obsess over being new ourselves. We don't like who we are or we don't like what we've become, so we chase personal renewal. Might be a new exercise routine, a new diet, a new way of thinking, new friends, a new practice, a new job, maybe a new town, a new church, a new husband or wife, perhaps a new sexuality or even a new gender. But you know, after a while, the glossy novelty factor of change, it, it kind of begins to fade. And we begin to realize that our circumstances aren't new, they're just more of the same. And so are we. We're still the same old people with the same old problems. Not that it stops us, though. All this novelty is really just what American philosopher Henry David Thoreau called an improved means to an unimproved end. And he said it over 150 years ago. So this morning in Isaiah 52, I want to show you a God who actually does make things new. We all need to know this God today. We all need to know the God who's revealed to us in today's message. But this might be especially true for you. If you're here today, I don't know everyone's story here today, but if you feel like you're just stuck in that desperate cycle of the same old life, the same old you, you wish there was something you could do to change that. This is a message for you today. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into God's word together. 
Our Lord and God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus. And as we come to your word now preached, let us hear it and understand it so that we may know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a, an outline in the order of service for you if you'd like to take notes or if you'd like to make drawings, whatever floats your boat. Um, please have a Bible open with you. It's helpful to be able to flip around with us this morning as we look at this passage. We're going to start by skipping forward to verse 9 of the reading that Phil read for us. And that's where the Lord makes an important declaration through his prophet Isaiah. So verse 9 of today's reading, Isaiah 42, says, Behold, literally, look, see, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, and before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things. The new things the Lord declares in advance are what this first section of the passage is about, from verse 1 to 9. And it begins back in verse 1, of course, with God saying, Take a look at my servant. Verse 1, have a look over there with me. Behold, again, look, see. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now, this is the first of four sections we're going to find in uh, Isaiah 40 to 55, this term. Uh, they're known as the servant songs. And this is the very first of the servant songs in Isaiah. Now, we need to know that the word servant is a loaded term, not just in Isaiah's prophecy, but in Scripture. There's a lot more behind that word here than just someone who does stuff when the master tells him to do it. It's a loaded term. It's like if I said Essendon to you right now, you'd think I was probably talking about more than football. Well, in Isaiah, and actually in the story of God's dealings with his people over the whole Old Testament, his servant was the nation of Israel. They inherited the promises God made to Abraham, that he would be their God, that they would live in his place, and that they would be his representatives on earth to be his people in the world. They were meant to reflect the Lord of heaven to the world. That's kind of what Adam was meant to do as well back in the garden. So if you've got a Bible with you, just flip over for a moment to the previous chapter, to Isaiah 41, verse 8. We're not looking at that chapter in our series, but it's helpful just to notice a few things there. So Isaiah 41 verse 8, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, my servant. That's what God says about his people Israel. But something changes because just on the other side of today's reading, so over in chapter 42 verse 19, I'll read from verse 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? 
What happened? Because sadly, that's the picture of a failed servant, a failed messenger. You see, the nation of Israel had God's word revealed to them, but they also had this phenomenal history with the Lord God. You just think back to the Exodus, the Red Sea, the Jordan, Jericho. But they'd been faithless, and they'd not trusted the true God who'd revealed himself to them. They trusted instead in themselves, they trusted in political alliances, and they trusted in the counterfeit gods of the surrounding nations. And in doing so, they hadn't just sinned against the Lord, but they'd also failed to fulfill their mandate as God's servant to reveal God to the world. Because actually, they were just like everyone else. And so God, in his mercy and in his faithfulness, he introduces a new servant. One who he delights in. One who he upholds. A servant who is truly new. And one reason why the servant is new is because, as it says, he has God's spirit in him. I will put my spirit upon him. Now, yes, a few people in Israel in the Old Testament could claim to have God's spirit upon them for particular purposes. You think of some of the kings and the prophets. The nation as a whole, the whole servant couldn't claim to have God's spirit upon them. But here God says, no, the servant will have my spirit upon him. The servant is completely empowered by God to fulfill the role the Lord has in store for him. So that's one thing. He's got God's spirit on him. Another thing in verse 1 is that this servant will actually bring forth justice. Justice. It's clearly his main task. It's repeated three times in verse 1 to 4. He will bring forth justice, verse 1. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will establish justice. Of course, justice is a big deal in our world. In our world at large, we, we demand justice, don't we? We're outraged at the poor and the marginalized and the minorities being oppressed and having their rights cast to the periphery. You know, there was an example of this just this weekend over in London. Two young climate activists uh, threw some soup at a Van Gogh painting and they glued themselves to the wall of the gallery. What is worth more, art or life, said one of the activists. It is, worth more, is it worth more than food, more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? We hear that very often in our world, don't we? We want justice. But we can also demand justice for ourselves. When we feel wronged or slighted, whether it's valid or not, or when we believe our rights have been offended, we get outraged. We demand justice. We want our rights recognized, and we want the other party to pay damages, whether literally or figuratively. Now, both these things contain elements of what the Bible means when it talks about justice, but unfortunately, it's only part of the truth. And Christians struggle with this too. We can too easily misunderstand biblical justice as on either end of this big spectrum. 
misunderstanding is there and it's frustrated the church for generations, especially in the 20th century. On the one hand, on the more liberal and progressive end, this misunderstanding of justice can hide behind terms like social justice, the uplifting of the oppressed, in other words, fighting for their rights. I'm not saying it's not important. There's a misunderstanding here. It's not the whole story. On the other hand, on the more conservative end of the spectrum, this misunderstanding of justice can hide behind a simple commitment to wanting to maintain Christian values, or in other words, fighting for our rights. We think that's justice. In fact, the biggest problem with all these views of justice is that they're far too small because they put humanity on the top of the heap. They put people on the side of the right and people on the side of the wrong. Either corporately and justice for them or individually justice for me. By contrast, the justice that the Bible is on about, and especially here in Isaiah, is neither of these. What it is, and note this, write it down and underline it. Biblical justice is the recognition that the Lord alone is God. That is justice according to the Bible, the recognition that the Lord alone is God. So not humans on the side of the right and humans on the side of the wrong, God on one side and everyone else on the other. And only from that verdict can flow any kind of social order or righting of wrongs or uplifting of the oppressed. The recognition that the Lord alone is God. And, you know, we see this definition of justice quite clearly in the relationship between chapters 41 and 42. Again, we're not going to look at the whole chapter, but you need to know that chapter 41 is actually a courtroom drama. Anyone enjoy courtroom dramas? But here the Lord is pitted against the false gods of the day. And the verdict, the justice that is served, is that the Lord is proved to be the one true living God. So back to 41 for a moment, verse 20 that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created. That's the verdict in the courtroom drama of chapter 41 and it needs to shape our understanding of the justice that the servant will bring about in chapter 42. Real justice is the recognition that the Lord alone is God and his new servant will establish this justice in a way that the failed servant was incapable of doing. But you know, it's not just the servant's work to establish God's justice that will be new. It's also the way he brings that justice about. So look with me please at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. How do we typically want to see justice established? Well, through volume, through force, through power, 
We feel that justice will only be achieved by mobilizing others to the cause, by making some noise, by taking back the power. A week ago in Melbourne, pro-choice and pro-life rallies had to be kept apart by police. Apart from the actual words on the placards, they both looked exactly the same, didn't they? Megaphones, large numbers, placards, big statements. By contrast, the Lord's Spirit-empowered servant will establish justice across the whole world without doing any of this. He will achieve justice quietly, gently, compassionately, faithfully, and he won't stop until he's done. We've got so much to learn in our quest for justice, don't we? You know, I think it can only, this kind of justice can only come from a complete submission to and recognition, of course, that the Lord is God. And only the servant of the Lord is capable of truly doing that. One writer notes, this is not going to be a human conquest by propaganda or force, but he will not be stopped, verse 4a. Instead, the servant will win minds and hearts throughout the world by the consistent, faithful penetration of his truth and compassion. You only have to read the pages of the New Testament Gospels to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he's absolutely right. Because this new servant is actually none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of the old servant, but also born of God himself as a completely new servant in whom the Lord delights. And actually in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew sees this prophecy in chapter 42 of Isaiah connected specifically to Jesus' ministry. And he sees it especially in how when the Pharisees begin to plot against Jesus to destroy him, Matthew 12, 14, Jesus doesn't meet them head on, you know, fight fire with fire. He actually turns around and turns his attention instead to those who need his care and compassion. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, aware of this hostility against him, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. After which Matthew quotes exactly the passage we've been looking at this morning. About the Lord's chosen servant, the Lord's delight, empowered by his spirit, who will bring justice to the nations, but gently and quietly and compassionately and faithfully. And so, of course, Jesus established the justice of the Lord's rule not by a powerful earthly victory. In fact, many people expected the coming Messiah to do that. But he established the justice of the Lord by suffering and dying in complete submission to the Lord, in recognition, showing that the Lord alone is God. This is what Isaiah's prophecy means when it comes to verse 6 of verse 42. I am the Lord... I have called you my servant in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, covenant's one of those kind of Bible words, isn't it? A covenant is essentially the agreed terms of a relationship. So if you become a member of Grace Christian Church Budrum, you make promises to us as a church, we make promises to you. And so we enter into a covenant together. 
It's incredible that the servant himself will now be given as the covenant terms between God and his people. The one in whom the Lord and his people can relate to each other. In fact, that's exactly what the New Testament means when it talks about how Christians are in Christ. So we have a servant who upholds justice. That's new. The recognition that the Lord is God. That's new. New way of seeing justice. We've got justice through gentleness. That's new. Lastly, it's a new thing that this justice will be to the nations. We see that in verse 1 and verse 4 as the coastlands beyond Israel wait for his law. Verse 6, where the servant is given as a light to the nations. And again in verse 10, in the new song that all nations will sing. And yes, this is an important theme in Isaiah. God's salvation plan is, of course, worked out through his people Israel. Even in their failed state, even as, as a failed servant. But the justice of the servant looks forward to a time when people of all nations will know God for themselves through the servant without having to go via Israel and the temple. Of course, those things passed away once their task was completed, at least in an earthly sense. So a new servant, a new justice established, a new scope, these are the new things that the Lord declares. In verse 10, of course, we see the right response to these new things, a new song. A new song of praise to the Lord for what he's done. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. It's been great to sing together this morning, hasn't it? In response to God's word. It is going to be a new song for the new thing the Lord has done. And because the songs we have just really won't do. You know, more and more we're seeing court cases with some up-and-coming musician taken to court for allegedly lifting part of their hit single from a song that's gone before. Now, it's hardly surprising because there are only so many things you can do with the 12 notes of the Western musical scale. But this song is going to be utterly new to go with the new things the Lord now causes to spring forth. And this this passage here actually anticipates something that's going to happen at the end of the Bible, where John sees and hears in the book of Revelation a new song. In Revelation chapter 5 and 14, a new song is sung in heaven when the Lamb finally takes his place on the throne, when the servant completes his task. I wonder what that song will sound like. But it'll be the only way to respond to these new things that the Lord himself will fulfill through his servant servant Jesus. Now the song that we have here in Isaiah hints at two pictures of the Lord as he works out these new things through his servant. So the first is the Lord as a mighty warrior. We see this in verse 13 and at the end in verse 17. So at the same time as the servant will achieve justice gently, compassionately, faithfully, doesn't mean the Lord's a pushover. Because at the same time, the Lord himself will rightly show himself to be the mighty and passionate warrior who rescues his people from the hand of their enemies. That's the first picture. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The second one is of a woman in labor. And we you know, give thanks and praise today that we had little Lily born to John and Mel yesterday. It's great news. 
But here we have a picture of what God is doing like a woman in labor. So like pregnancy, there's a period of waiting. And then at the right time, only at the right time, but through pain and struggle and exertion. I know this firsthand, I was there for the birth of both my kids. Through pain and struggle and exertion, new life is brought into the world. Australian Bible teacher Barry Webb, I think, summarizes this really well. He says, redemption is accomplished with tremendous effort and at great cost. And it is the glory of the Lord that he spares himself neither. He is totally committed to the welfare of his people, however blind they may be and however dark their circumstances. He will not forsake. Verse 16. Now, at this point, I'd kind of like to say to you, if you want something that's really new, don't go shopping. Try Jesus. Because everything else is just the same old, same old uh, improved means to an unimproved end. Jesus actually offers something entirely new. As God's servant, establishing a new form of justice from which all other justice may finally flow. And with a new scope, the whole world. And for those who behold God's servant and recognize who he is, who put their trust in him, the Bible actually promises a new you. So if you've got a Bible with you, please flip over for a moment to the New Testament, to the letter of 2 Corinthians. Two Corinthians chapter five. Two Corinthians chapter five, reading from verse seventeen. Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, if, if God has given his servant Jesus as a covenant for you, and you are therefore in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Your blindness, your darkness, your sin, the person you once were. Because the Bible says we were crucified with Christ. We died with him. And in his death, our old self has also died. And in his resurrection, we too have been raised to new life forever. The new has come, a glorious future with the Lord Jesus Christ in his new creation for eternity. And it's a new life that's actually already begun if you're in Christ today. This is surely something worth praising God about. Now this morning I've wanted to show you in these verses... A God who makes things new. In fact, in the very last uh, page of the Bible, uh, 
in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so we have them in our Bible today to remind ourselves that Jesus is making all things new. And because he makes all things new, he he can make you new as well. Has God made you a new creature in Christ? If not, maybe today's the day you'd like to do something about that and see the old pass away and the new begin. Maybe chat to a trusted Christian friend or chat to one of us up here after the service. We'd love to help you do that. But maybe you're a Christian and you still struggle to believe that God has made you a new person in Christ. You're still haunted by your past. The things you've done, maybe the things that were done to you, the things you've suffered, the habits and situations you just can't leave behind. Could that be because you're looking at yourself or perhaps your past or your circumstances more than looking at the God who actually makes you new? Now, some might call that sort of cognitive dissonance. But the truth is that God's opinion of us is not based on us. It's based on Jesus. The servant who stood in our place to do what we couldn't do. And his is the only opinion that matters, even if nothing changes around us. And just think what we'd be like if we truly knew that God had made us new people, even in the maybe messy situations in which we find ourselves. As I close, I'd like to tell you about John Newton. John Newton probably wrote the most famous hymn in, um, in the world, in Christian history, Amazing Grace in 1779. We're still singing it 300-something years later. You, Newton himself actually had a really hard start to life. Uh, His mother, who was a Christian, died when he was only six. His dad was a sailor. And so he was taken into his dad's care and had to go to sea with his dad. His dad was a hard man. A man who didn't show much love to young John. And apparently John Newton only had sort of two years of formal schooling in his whole childhood. Uh, From age 11, he was at sea. And he obviously received his education then from sailors. Gambling, drinking, swearing, and everything else that goes along with it. At 18, he was press-ganged into the Royal Navy. And later, he became a slave trader in West Africa. As a young man, all he learned was how to receive abuse and how to dish it out. He once wrote, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. But finally, in his 20s, the Lord Jesus took hold of him, and he was never the same. He ended up becoming a preacher of the gospel. He pastored two churches in England, and his marriage and his ministry lasted some 40 years. A little bit later, reflecting on what the Lord had done in his life, Newton said this. I'll put it up on the screen. I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. My prayer is that this would be true of all of us, because we serve a God who makes things new. Let's pray.
Lord God, a passage like this reminds us just how helpless and powerless we are. We need you. Please help us, Father, to know you as a God who makes things new in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe you when you promise us that we are new creatures in Christ. Please free us from the bonds of the past and help us to look with joy towards that song that we will sing in heaven one day around your throne. For Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray, for his glory. Amen.